morning, IBC family. <clears throat> Happy Memorial Day. <clears throat> if you have your Bibles, turn to um, the, uh, Psalms 19. <clears throat> I just have to say, two weeks ago, I read for Tom four verses. Last week, I read from Mike four verses. Aaron gives me an entire chapter. <laughs> but also, I just want to say, Happy Memorial Day. We were watching TV the other night there, and they were showing a scene of all the crosses in the cemetery. Sorry, I get a little choked up in this. Because it really made me think of all those men and women that gave their lives sacrificially for our country and for our freedom. So I just was, yeah, it choked me up. But even more, Jesus gave his life up for us too. And for eternal life. So we just want to be thankful for that. <clears throat> okay. Psalms 19. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftiness. The day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make him known. They speak without a sound or a word. Their voices is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth, and their words is to all the world. God has made a home in the heaven for the sun. It bursts forth like a radiant bridegroom after the wedding. It rejoices like a great athlete eager to run. The sun rises at one end of the heavens and follows its course to the other end. Nothing can hide from its heat. The instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. Reverence for the Lord is pure, lasting forever. The law of the Lord are true, each one is fair. They are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey dipped from the comb. They are warning to your servants a great reward to those who obey them. How can I know all the sin that lurks in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults. Keep your servant from deliberate sins. Do not let them control me, for I will be free of guilt and innocent of sin. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you. As we come to church this morning, Father, and we look up and we see those beautiful mountains and the snow and the blue skies and all the trees and your creation, how can we not believe in you? Father, you are such a great God. And Lord, we just thank you so much as, as we think, Father, as, as Memorial Day, but also, Father, that you gave your life for each one of us. A sinner, Father, no reason, but yet, Father, you loved us so much you laid your life down. So we just pray now, as Aaron brings a word to us, Lord, as it said here, it's sweeter than honey, Father. It's, it's joy to those who follow it. And, Father, we would just take that in and let you speak to our hearts. So, Father, we again thank you for all that you do. In your name, amen. Thanks, brother. Thank you, Rob. I knew you could... Read an entire chapter. So I just wanted to see if you could read an entire chapter. And you prove us all right. Happy Memorial Day. I don't usually uh, draw attention to a lot because I think every single day there's, this is the day of this and this is the day of that. And there's days for everything for 365 days. And so most of the time you hear it on the radio in the morning, it's the national day of this, the national day of that and national day of whatever, and it's like, who cares, right? But I think when it comes to Memorial Day, we ought to all care. And, uh, and uh, it's not because we, we, we celebrate the military necessarily, but we definitely celebrate the freedom that we uh, are grateful for every single day. And I, as you well know, and, but I'll say it anyways, we know that freedom is never free, it's never been free. It has always cost somebody. And so we find a great privilege and honor, and really just that's really God's blessing in our lives, not because we deserved it by any sense of the word, but because we are just the recipients of his goodness 
and his grace. So, by the way, how many veterans are in here? How many active military or veterans do we have in here right now? Could you just stand up for a moment? Can you stand up? Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for your service, and, uh, and for many of those who are live streaming with us that no doubt are maybe standing in their living room right now. Um, I don't know about you, but uh, one of the shows I like to watch on a quasi-regular basis, you know, and we do this every once in a while, though it has been a little bit of time now, but I like to watch this thing called Planet Earth, and they have multiple versions of it, just because you get to see God's glorious creation and very, uh, and with visual display, you know, they have the best cameras, the best cinematographers, and you get to see all kinds of incredible creation, and part of that creation is the animal kingdom, Right? That, and the, just the, so many, the, the variety of animals that God and his imagination, and I, I'm sure it only scratches the surface for what heaven potentially is going to, to uh, blow us away with, but we get to this taste, this foretaste of God's creative imagination through the animal kingdom. I'm also, in, a, in conjunction with the animal kingdom, and I know I might be stepping on some toes here this morning, but I'm grateful that some of those animals we get to eat. <laughs> yes, I know there, for you vegetarians or vegans in the room right now, I am sorry. I do apologize sincerely, actually, but I do love eating some of those animals. And, um, you know, something about eating animals or meat in this case is uh, you can tell what an animal eats by, or you can buy what they taste like. Do you realize that? Uh, it, for you hunters in the room, if you get your elk, you get your bear, you get your deer, or whatever it may be, you, you catch your salmon. The fact is, when you taste that food, you can usually tell the diet, not that because you'd be able to pinpoint it, but every animal has a distinct flavor depending upon its diet. And uh, so that actually includes domesticated animals too. You know, we like to get a, try to get a cow every year and fill the freezer with a cow. Hopefully it's cost-saving. At least we know it has been fed. And, uh, but the thing about every cow is this. You can manipulate the taste of that cow by what you feed it. And sometimes we've had some good cows, and sometimes they've been... You have to kind of put a lot of spices in. We'll just put it that way. <laughs> They're not as flavorful as some of the other cows that we've tasted before. So you can tell what an animal is like by how it tastes. But there's another observation you can make about animals, and that is this. You can tell how much an animal eats just by looking at it. In other words, uh, if you see a lot of ribs, like when we go to India, you see a lot of cows wandering around the street, and their ribs are protruding from their belly. And I go, that cow does not look very tasty, let alone it looks like its diet is very limited, and he, that cow looks very malnourished. Now, on the other hand, or in contrast, if your cat's belly serves as more of a mop, then refer to Mike's sermon from last week about fasting for your cat. Maybe kind of a ease back on the food. You're not doing the cat any service or your animal any favor whatsoever. Here's the deal. How much an animal eats, what they taste like, we're actually very similar as people. These similar observances can be made about the human race as well. You are what you eat. Whatever you consume in life, especially in, the, in, the, in regards to food and drink, will influence your appearance, your health, your energy, your lifestyle, and even your longevity. Now, you might be wondering to yourself, did Pastor Aaron come up here to preach a sermon about my diet practices? And maybe if you give me a little conviction about what I ate for breakfast this morning. And the answer is yes and no. No, we are not talking about your dietary practices or the actual food that you have eaten. But yes, we are going to talk this morning about what we ingest 
spiritually. We're going to talk about our spiritual diet. We're going to talk about our, the, our spiritual feeding habits and see that what we eat and how often we eat it has a, a radical influence on your spiritual health and your spiritual effectiveness. We've discussed this in the past before, but I'll say it again. We, we, we need to come to grips with this idea that everything in life, everything, everything you expose yourself to is discipling you in some way, shape, or form. Everything. There is no neutrality in life. Everything you expose you to, to yourself to in life has both an influence to you as well as a shaping uh, value of who you're becoming. So if you're in the habit of regularly feasting or if you have a regular diet of social media and news, then it should come as no surprise to you that your values and your priorities and your perspectives are consistent with those sources. In the same way, if, you're, if you are in the consistent habit or have a consistent diet of Scripture, then what you can expect over time is that your values and your priorities and your perspective on life and reality are consistent with that of Scripture. And since we're on the topic, and I'll throw this one in for free, I guess, I was reading uh, in a book not too long ago, but I've made reference to it before, but did you know that science, now I say that tongue-in-cheek because I know science, depending on how that lands on your ears, could have a, is it really science, is it not science, what are we talking about here, and I don't want to go down that rabbit trail right now, but there are scientific studies that have shown this, and this has been a profound impact even in my own life, but scientific studies that have shown that what you think about just before you go to bed, and what you think about, or the first thing you think about when you wake up has a more shaping uh, influence in, on your brain than anything else. Think about that. What you think about or consume your time with just prior to going to sleep, as well as what you think about first thing when you wake up, has the most shaping value on your brain than any other time of the day. It sort of, it sort of kind of sobers us in a sense to consider what our nighttime and our morning time routine might be, right? What's the last thing I think about before I lay my head and close my eyes? What's the first thing I acknowledge, either passively or proactively, when I wake up? That has the most shaping value on your brain. Now, I have enough sense that as I stand up here before you and and I say to you, you should read your Bible more, you're probably going, yeah, I know. We could probably all acknowledge, at least to some degree, that all of us in here would benefit by reading our Bibles more consistently or more often, right? Even I myself, as I am preparing this study, I'm going, I need to spend more time in Scripture. I don't spend enough time in Scripture. I don't always go to Scripture as often as I need to in whatever situation I find myself in. But even though that all of us in here could probably admit or acknowledge the same thing and and admit that we probably could benefit more by reading the Bible more regularly or more consistently, that's not necessarily going to convince us or change our habit. We're not necessarily, just because we know the right thing to do doesn't necessarily mean we are empowered or compelled to do it, which is why I chose Psalm 19 for our passage this morning. Because King David, as he pens these words, as inspired by the Spirit of God, he doesn't just say, read the Bible more, but he kind of whets our appetite. And he shows us, in a sense, he gives us incentives as to why, or benefits as to why devotion, consistent devotion to the Scripture has value on our lives. You see, what you and I need more of isn't hearing again what we already know to be true. What we need to become convinced of is how Scripture is an imperative part of our life, 
a non-negotiable part and how we benefit significantly by it. And it's interesting in Psalm 19, King David, he kind of, he, uh, he kind of has this like poetic prose that he brings to, uh, to our passage here that we're going to be unpacking this morning. He, he, first of all, he references Scripture in a lot of synonymous ways, right? He, talk, he refers to Scripture by saying precepts, commands, the law, all these synonyms for referring to God's revelation to us. And then he gives a, a, a very a kind of a, an adjectival description of that usage of Scripture, and then he tells us how Scripture benefits us in a very specific or tangible way. Now, before I jump into our text here this morning, which will be specifically verses 7 through 11, I want us to give us kind of a, just an overview of Psalm 19, because as you, which is why I had Rob read the entire passage for us, because it's helpful to know really the context in which David, King David himself, is writing this psalm. You see, in the first six verses of Psalm 19, God is giving us a, a general revelation of himself, and he does that through creation. God's general or what we call natural revelation is seen, observed, and understood through creation. Paul the Apostle even references this in Romans 1. And he says, you know, everyone is without excuse because look at the creation. Look what God has made. Everyone should know or come to some sort of conclusion that I'm not alone. You're right. We are not alone in the universe. There's a God who created everything. I may not know him, but I know that I am not God. And then in the next five verses of Psalm 19, which we'll be looking at more specifically in our time this morning, is that God is speaking to us through what we call special revelation, or, and that's a reference to the Bible, or what we say, the Scriptures. You see, God reveals himself in a much more specific way through the Scriptures. Now, I thought it was really interesting, because when you not that you've done this probably, but when you look at the psalm in its original language, which is Hebrew, and I know you've probably all read Psalm 19 in Hebrew recently, right? Because you all understand that. I know Corey has, right, Corey? Okay, well, he's working on it. (laughs) He's working on his Hebrew. The fact is, when you look at the first six verses, the, the, the name for God, we just have God, but in Hebrew, it's El, which is short for Elohim. And in the five verses that we're, or the four verses that we're going to be uh, uh, discussing here, five verses we're going to be discussing here, the word for God, which in our English translation only says God again, it's actually Yahweh. Now you might be wondering, so? What's the big idea? What's the significance of that? Well, I think it's significant because El or Elohim speaks to God's power especially his creative power. But the name for God, Yahweh, speaks to his relationship with his people. In fact, you see this in Genesis 1 in contrast to Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis 1, the entire chapter of Genesis is Elohim. Elohim created because it's God's reference to his creative power. And Genesis 1 is all about God's creation of the world. And then you transfer to Genesis chapter 2, and it changes after the first couple of verses, after God rests, guess what? It changes, and now he's Yahweh. He's not Elohim, creator God. He's Yahweh relating to his people, and it's all about his relationship with Adam and Eve and, and following the human race. Here's my point in raising this observation. Since Yahweh is God's name as he relates to us, then the implication that we see in Psalm 19, especially these verses 7 through 11, is that God's special revelation, his, his, the, the Bible, the scriptures, are intended to foster a divinely initiated relationship with us. Let me put it in very plain terms. Scripture is God's means of fostering a relationship with you and me. That's why we have it. God is, yes, making himself known, 
but he's making himself known to foster a relationship with you and with me, his creation. And the result of pursuing God through his special revelation called the Holy Scriptures is that we receive his blessing in a variety of ways. So let's look at these many benefits that we receive by relating to God through his word. And by the way, if you do not have a Bible with you, look at the pew in front of you, unless you're in the front seat, sorry. Um, actually, right underneath there might be something, but if you, have a, if you do not have a Bible with you, grab the Bible in front of you. If you do not have a Bible at all, grab the Bible in front of you and keep it for yourself. And if you don't have a Bible still, don't turn on your phone, raise your hand. The ushers would be more than happy to place a Bible in your hands. I want you to look at the scriptures with me. I want you to be fed by God and relate to God by you opening the scriptures and letting him speak to you. So in Psalm 19, we start in verse 7. King David has already talked about God's general revelation through creation, and now he jumps into God's special revelation, the Holy Scriptures. And look what he says in verse 7. The instructions or the law of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, it's whole, it's complete, it's comprehensive, it's lacking in nothing. And its ability is to revive or restore or restore to refresh the soul. Let me ask you a question. When you are physically tired, like in all honesty, like I am right now, when you're emotionally weary, when you are mentally tapped, when you are spiritually dry, when you are relationally perplexed, what do you turn to? Or to who do you turn to to become re- refreshed, restored, revived? You see, all of us in here at some point in time in our life, maybe even this morning, we get to these places in life where we're just kind of, we're just tired. Emotionally, physically, spiritually, mentally, relationally. What do you turn to to be restored, to be refreshed, to be renewed? Maybe some of you, uh, maybe some of you, your habit is to kind of slump down the, your favorite chair, whip out this thing called the smartphone and to just numb out, right? Social media has that effect. Maybe some of you uh, like to just put on a movie and just kind of check out, like, I don't have to think about anything else. I get lost in some other story that's been created for me. Maybe some of you like to just turn on the music and drown out the other noises and the other voices that you don't want to listen to anymore. Let's get real serious. Maybe for some of you, it's, let's look at some pornography. That's a nice release, right? Maybe for some of you, it's pouring one glass too many because that makes me feel numb. Maybe for some of you, it's isolation. I don't want to be around anybody anymore. Maybe we, we specifically... Pursue isolation by just becoming a workaholic. What is it for you? What do you turn to? Because the fact is, we all have our inclinations, our defaults that we turn to to kind of to restore, to revive, to give us a kind of a, a pick me up, right? But the question is, do what whatever you turn to, or to to whom you turn to, does it actually refresh, renew, and restore? Listen to what God says about the ability of his word. God says that all of scripture is so perfectly complete that it is the only source that is able to refresh, to restore, and to renew us to the uttermost parts of our soul. 
the inner person like no other source can. You know, we turn to things, but they never last. There are so many things in life, and even amoral things that, are, that, that, that can be a, a source of joy or a source of just kind of rest, but it never lasts. And yet King David, inspired by the Spirit of God, pens these words about the Holy Scriptures and says, it is God's Word to us that ultimately restores down to the innermost parts of our soul. In fact, I love what one translation says. It says, God's word has the ability to convert the soul. That word for convert, convert means to, that God's word has the power to change your thinking, to change your demeanor, to change your perspective on whatever life situation you find yourself in, right? And how appropriate is that? Because so often, we, we, especially if you're having some relational issue or you're, or you're, you're troubled by some circumstance in life or maybe there's a financial struggle or there's whatever, marital stress or whatever it is, and we start, our minds start going crazy. And we start fabricating all kinds of narratives that take us down all kinds of rabbit trails which have to be a very destructive end oh, I bet they're probably thinking this and they're probably thinking that and they're probably going to do this and they probably think this about me and our minds are going crazy and and none of it could be true. We need a a radical, supernatural conversion of the mind and heart and that's what the scripture does for us. Even as my sister-in-law texted me this morning, Rachel said, she texted me John 6.63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, Jesus says, are spirit and they are life. I wonder how your inner being, the deepest parts of your soul might be more thoroughly ministered to if you would first turn to God and let his words minister to your heart in a way that no other source can. I wonder how turning to God first, how that might heal your broken heart. How, that, how the words of Jesus might speak words of life to your restless soul. There is no other source more able to restore you, David says, from decay and disorder and sorrow and affliction and death than the presence of God through his words to us. That's just one benefit. He continues on in verse 7. The decrees of the Lord or the testimonies of the Lord are trustworthy. They make wise the simple. That word for trustworthy, it means to be reliable or certain or fixed or stable, unwavering, immovable, infallible, consistent. And therefore, they make the simple person wise with understanding. I don't know about you, but one of the many activities that Abby and I like to do with the kids is we just go down to the mouth of Morris Creek. We go down to the mouth of the Elwha. The kids can just run and the waves chase them, and it's endless hours of entertainment for them. And, uh, and we love it, too, just to go down there because you're out in God's creation and uh, you get to just play with driftwood and jump over everything. And it's a lot of fun. But one thing we've noticed always, at least we've talked about sometimes, but I notice always, every single time I go to the mouth of Morris Creek or the Elwha mouth, guess what? It looks different. Have you noticed that? Given the you know winter tides versus summer tides, you get the river currents. How much how much snow melt you know increases the current of the water? It changes. It changes every single time we go visit it. You're all, it's almost kind of like let's see what the mouth looks like now this week or this month, right? Because we know it's going to be radically different. And I can't help but think as as the the mouth of these rivers change so often, so regularly, it reminds me of kind of our moral compass in our society today. How often it changes. And depending on who's in power and who's the loudest, most influential voice, what is right one day is wrong the next day. What was right 10 years ago is no longer right or politically correct 10 years to, you know, in past. I mean, it's just, if everything's just kind of like changing constantly, and then King David says this, God's word never changes. It never, ever, 
ever changes. His special revelation to us is trustworthy because it is immovable and unwavering and infallible. God's standard of right and wrong has always been a standard of right and wrong from eternity past to eternity future. Just as God is the same yesterday and today and forever, so is his moral law. So is his scriptures to us. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It doesn't change. And the benefit, King David says, he says, because we have an unchanging standard in the midst of so much change around us, it makes the simple person wise with understanding. That word for the simple person is one who is gullible or or vulnerable to all kinds of false ideas and, and false perspectives and unbiblical, immoral imperatives, which we are inundated with all the time. And yet the Scripture replaces confusion with clarity, with uncertainty, with certainty, with ignorance, with knowledge and understanding. And because, as I said earlier, because Scripture is God's way of fostering a relationship with you and me, we see that Scripture replaces isolation and loneliness with friendship, belonging, and identity. Verse 8. The commandments or the precepts of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. That word for right is actually fair, straight, or smooth. The path forward is clear to us, in other words. The first time I, uh, me and a few guys did the Bailey Range, which is, by the way, our backyard out here, it's incredible. We were in this place called Ferry Basin, and uh, Ferry Basin is like a moonscape. I mean, it's just like, it's just incredible. It's so different than where we're living, even on this part of the Olympic Peninsula. And you go back there, and you're just like, it's just, you got multiple lakes. you got Mount Olympus from a different view. I'm looking at Dick Cott right now. He knows exactly what I'm talking about. And we're back there. But the first time we did the Bailey Range, not having all the experience that Dick Cott has had in the, in the Olympics, uh, we were back there. And just envision this for a moment. Five guys looking at a topo map going, huh, wait a second, is it over this way? The whole time we're kind of like, well, if this is Fairy Mountain, then we got to go this way. But if this is Fairy Mountain, then we got to go this way. And the whole time we're trying to figure out which one is Fairy Mountain. You know, we're in Fairy Basin, but which one is Mount Fairy? Which one is this one? Which, where are we at here, actually? And so Jan Didrikson and I drop packs and we go off different ways, trying to get a higher look, climbing up, exerting more calories and energy. Finally, obviously, we figure out, oh, this is where we need to go. And guess what? We're like, whew. Rejoicing of the heart. We know where to go. We're not going in circles here, and we're not burning calories. We're not burning daylight. We're spending hours going, how do we get out of this basin? Because there's no trail. You're just kind of going by waypoints, basically. I think the same is also true as this relates to the Scripture. You see, Scripture, as Stephen Lawson explains, he says, it lays out the proper path through the intricate complexities of life. Steering a person through the right course of life. The fact is, brothers and sisters, I hope I don't have to convince you or explain it to you, but I know this. Life is marked by many, many tripping hazards. Many, many things that jump out and grab your feet. Many, many things that, 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 that appeal to your attention, but they're not actually good for you. And what David is telling us here is like the word of God actually steers us through the intricate complexities of life and we are able to navigate the right path and the ultimate result or benefit of that is that there's joy of the heart. There's, there's genuine rejoicing knowing that you are in right status with God, that you are walking and living a life that is pleasing to him. It's sort of as Moses kind of tells us in Deuteronomy 30, the commandments of God are not burdensome, but your very life. They give you life because they clearly point out the path to life. You know, many of us have asked, what is God's will for my life? Or, or, or what should I do in this particular situation? And David tells us, God instructs us through his word. He guides us through 
his word. The commands of the Lord, David goes on to say in verse, the end of verse 8, the commands of the Lord are clear or they're radiant, giving insight for the living or enlightening one's understanding. Just this past week, I reached a new benchmark in my vision. I got my first set of bifocals. You know, I've seen, I've watched many of you when you're like, especially the elders come up and read and they stand back here to read. And I'm like, how do you see that far? I'm nearsighted. You got to get close and stuff. But then I realized, as my eye doctor said, sometime around 40, guess what? You're going to start doing this. And all of a sudden that dim, relaxing ambiance light is not good enough to read. And it's true. Now I'm there. And now I'm doing this with these transitions going, okay, here we go. <laughs> Not sure I like it, but I don't have a lot of choice. You know what? Scripture is not fuzzy. It is not unclear. It is not mysterious or cryptic. Yes, there are mysteries that are so profound that we will spend eternity unpacking and understanding and knowing. And at the same time, God's special revelation to us can be palatable to a child. You see, God wants to make himself knowable. He wants to be known because he knows as, as we being image bearers of God he wants us to understand your life is dependent on how and how much, you know, how much you know me, the kind of intimate relationship that we can have with one another. You see, Scripture not only shows us the path to life, but it illuminates the path of life for safe passage. What does David said in Psalm 119, 105? Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I won't go into it right now, but I couldn't help but remember a Another adventure that I had with my friend Jack Wade in high school, we, ran, we rode our bikes over Resurrection Pass, like a 40-mile trail up and over a pass, and the Lord saved us. I'll just leave it at that. Another story for another time. But the point is, Scripture shows us the path of life. It's not mysterious. God makes himself known. Verse 9, reverence or fear for the Lord is pure, lasting forever or eternal. You know, they say that the, a bar of ivory soap is 99.44% pure, meaning it doesn't have all these other ingredients added to it, doesn't have other stuff. It's, it's supposedly the purest soap that you can get on the market today that's mass-produced. Maybe you can make something even better, I don't know. But they say ivory soap is the purest, 99.44%. 4-4% pure, but David tells us there's something even more pure than a bar of ivory soap, and that is the Holy Scriptures. He says that it is 100% flawless, unadulterated truth. It is without any error whatsoever. And brothers and sisters, please understand, there is some deep rest for my soul knowing that in the midst of a world of disinformation that is changing constantly, that there's a scripture, there's a standard that does not change. You know, we have to read everything with kind of a critical eye or listen with a critical ear, and we have to evaluate its sources and its content, but the Bible is a welcome friend that we can let our hair down and let it wash over us without any hesitation and let it minister to the deepest parts of our soul. Why? Because it is always true and always relevant in all that it says. Now, fear here doesn't mean that we should somehow be afraid of God through the Scripture. No, fear is just receiving and acknowledging the words of God 
because it is God speaking to us. In other words, we're, we, we know that when we come into and open the Bible, we're not just reading a book as in we read other books or listening to a book. It's not just another source out of many sources. It is the divine source. It is the only inspired word that never changes and as even God himself says, will never change. We will have it forever. God, people, our prayers and the word of God are the only four things that are eternal. Everything will come and go, but those things will last forever. And we see that because God is eternal and his word is equally eternal, it doesn't require newer abridged versions. It doesn't require updates. There's no bugs to fix like our amazing technology. It it was perfectly relevant to the people of Israel thousands of years ago. It is just as relevant for us today. The laws or the ordinance of the Lord, David goes on to say, are true. Each one is fair, just, or righteous. You know, some people might ask this question. Is God good in everything that he does? Is God really good in everything that he says and everything that he does? And the answer is an emphatic yes. Or you might have asked this question before, does God ever do anything that isn't perfectly just or righteous? Because after all, sometimes we don't understand the ways of God, right? Sometimes we don't understand why God does the things that he does. Sometimes we don't understand why he allows certain things to happen and it confuses our mind and we see some things in scripture where God is good and yet we see this, this tragedy that's happening in this family's life and we go, how do we reconcile these two seemingly contradictory observations? But what David draws us to Even though we may not understand circumstances in the moment, what David draws us to is this. God's ordinances, his law, are always true, which means they're stable, they're firm. Each one is righteous and fair and just. God cannot act and cannot do and cannot say anything otherwise. Otherwise, he would cease to be God. Bless you. Well, now we come to the implications of all these benefits. Verse 10. They are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They are sweeter than honey, even the honey dripping from the comb. Let me just summarize what David is really kind of getting at today. Because God's word revives the soul like no other remedy can, because God's word gives wisdom like no other source can, because God's word fills us with hope and joy like no other source can, because God's word is perfectly flawless like nothing else can be, because God's word shows us the path of abundant life that Jesus speaks of in John 10.10, because God's word gives us understanding that no other source can in can be, uh, that no other source can in a confused and hopeless world because God's word is unchanging and eternally relevant regardless of time and place in history. Because God's word is perfectly fair and righteous in all that he says, then King David says that, I think scripture is more valuable than gold. Almost kind of an understatement. Look at all these benefits. Look at what the scripture does. Look how God relates to us and fosters relationship with us through his special revelation to us. It is more valuable than gold, than anything this world has to offer. And he goes on to give it another illustration. It's sweeter than honey, meaning its source is of great pleasure, fully satisfying our spiritual hunger and need. This is David's conclusion. Because God's word is like this, it is greater than anything else we could entertain in our lives. It doesn't mean that other pursuits are wrong. It just means they are subservient to the scriptures. And he goes on to say in verse 11, they are a warning to your servant and a great reward for those who obey them. 
You know, similar to what David pens in first, you know, Psalm chapter 1, right? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and, his, and on his law he meditates day and night. Who is the blessed person in life? What does it mean to truly be blessed in your life? according to God? The one who regularly devotes themselves to and meditates on his divine word. That's the blessed person, according to God. But I think it also begs another question. If there are so many benefits to be gained by, by consistent time in and, and meditation on Scripture, then why do we struggle so much to make Scripture an essential part of our life? Why do we struggle so much? Why, do, why, does, why is Scripture oftentimes relegated to uh, many other good books, even good Christian books or podcasts? Why can it be such a struggle for Scripture to have its rightful place in our lives if we have all these benefits? And this just scratches the surface. Look at Psalm 119 if you want a more exhaustive benefit package. Well, there's four things or four reasons, I believe, that are common to most of us in here as to why Scripture does not have its rightful place as it deserves. I think one reason or the first reason is because some of you have never read long enough or consistent enough to receive the benefits Scripture promises. Let me illustrate what I'm saying in this way. There are these occasions in our household where we introduce our kids to what we call a new food dish or a new food item. And you know what happens in our household? Mom makes a new dish, and guess what? Kids are jumping up and down with glee to try something new. Isn't that what your kids do or did? No. It is met with opposition. What is the words that come out of their mouth when they see this dish that looks foreign to them? I don't like it. And, of course, the conversation somewhat goes like this. How do you know you don't like it? You've never had it. I don't like it. This is disgusting. This is gross. And then I, in turn, correct them for being disrespectful to mom. And you're going to try it anyways. You're going to try two or three bites. You know, we give some sort of kind of like, if you don't, you're going to set the table for a very long time. You know, it's this, back, this is battle that in, just engages. We're just going after it. It's a battle of the wills. But here's what happens. They finally have to take that first bite as much as they don't like it. And mourning is turned to gladness. <laughs> and dancing. I mean, it's all of a sudden like, wow, this is really good. Upon which Abby and I are like, I know. We told you you would like it. We knew that you would love this. Why didn't you believe us? And yet, when it comes to Scripture, the Lord is just giving this patient, loving appeal and invitation to say, just taste and see how good I am. Trust me. And yet, for some of us in here, We've never taken that first bite. We might have heard that, yeah, I've heard that I probably would benefit from the scriptures. I know I probably have, have some value in my life, but in all honesty, we haven't taken that first bite. And so much like my kids who are resistant to the point of threat, God graciously and patiently and loving just says, trust me, you have everything to gain and nothing to lose. Taste and see how good I am. I have life to offer you, life abundantly, and there's no other way to get the life and your needs satisfied except in me. 
I think another reason we, that Scripture does not, it maybe is not a consistent priority in our lives, at least for some of us, is that some of us just say, well, I'm not really a reader. I'm not going to show you a show of hands, but I have heard this a lot. I'm not really a reader. Now, I know the, advancement, the advancements in technology have not really advanced our literacy too much, but I can't, let me just say this very bluntly. As a matter of healthy spiritual practice, you and I must learn or become a reader and meditator on Scripture. There's no short circuit. There's no, there's no easy path. There's no easy button. There's no, it's just we have to form the practice or the habit. It may not be natural at first, but over time it becomes more and more natural. I never grew up loving to read. I just wanted to ride my bike, build forts, play war, whatever it was. Reading, I only did for the incentive. And if there was no incentive, then I, you, you'd be hard-pressed to do it. I'll to be honest with you, as a pastor, reading takes effort for me today. You might think, oh, Aaron's a pastor. He just loves, he, if he could have his wish list, he'd just sit in his study and read all day long. No. I still want to go ride my bike. I still want to go hike in the mountains. But you know what? I've learned to become a reader and meditator of Scripture and other books. You know why? Because I have enjoyed and I have tasted and received the benefits and the effects by it. And so even though I don't love the process, just like I don't love running, I love the effects of it. I love it because of what I get from it. So if, you're, if your reason for not being devoted to Scripture is like, wow, man, I'm just not really much of a reader— you know what? Become one. Just become one. And let me offer you a suggestion in becoming one. Start small. How many runners begin their running regimen by running 10 miles and run after that? No, it's one and done. Start small. Just take little portions and, and just read and meditate on it. You know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of maybe reading the Bible through the year at times. I think the 30,000-foot perspective of reading Scripture is really important. You see the grand redemptive narrative that is important to understand. But that approach isn't for everybody, and it's not even always applicable for me at times. Some of you need to read less and think more. You need to reflect more. Because, see, the goal of reading is not to get through a reading plan. The goal of reading is to encounter God by entering into his presence through the Scripture. Because remember, he's, you're, God is fostering a relationship with you through his eternal and divine word. And we do this by slowing down and reading and rereading and rereading again and chewing on small portions so that you can digest every flavor it has to offer. I love what Howard Hendricks actually said. He says, it's not so much how, it's not how much you get into the word, but how much the word gets into you. That's what matters. And so, by the way, if you want a, an easy app, even if it's not reading, but it's more listening-based, the church actually pays for a subscription called the Dwell app. And it's, you, can get whatever, you can get whatever language you want. There's even Spanish, Portuguese, and other languages and stuff too. You can get it if you, if you feel so desired. But most of us in here probably speak in English. But you can get all kinds of, you know, woman's voice, a man's voice, different, different uh, um, I can't even think of the word right now and stuff. like. But the point is, like, it, it is a great app so that you would just sit and let the word of God wash over you. Sometimes I'll put my earbuds in. Even when I talked about when I was doing the Sabbath, I'll put the earphones on put on the dwell app and I'm just cruising around mowing my lawn and letting Psalm 119 go just wash over me and just like there's nothing like just letting God speak to you. Yes, I'm doing it passively in that particular context, but that is just one of many tools. We have no excuse. 
I think the question comes down to this. Another reason why we struggle to prioritize Scripture, and I'm going to pick up the pace here, is that because up to this point, for some of you, maybe life is just already really good. Life is already really good for you. Even though you may know or have heard that Scripture promises blessing when you devote yourself to it, in all honesty, you feel as though you already feel blessed already. You have all that you think you need. Things are actually going pretty good for you right now. Things are under control, so you think. Nothing bad seems to be happening to you. So you ask this question, how important really is Scripture in my life? Let me just ask this as a follow-up question to your potential question. If this somewhat relates to you, let me ask you this question. How do you know you are really doing good? How do you know things are actually fine in your life and that you are in a healthy place spiritually? You see, our enemy, Satan, the father of lies and the accuser of the brethren, he has all kinds of strategies. And one of his strategies is not an all-out assault on your life and your family. One of his strategies is just to be completely hands-off. You see, one of the things that Satan does is that he actually takes his hands off so that we go blindly down the path to destruction, thinking everything's good. What need do I have for Scripture? Life has got good already. I got everything that I need in life. And he wants you to keep thinking that that's the case. He wants to take the pressure off you so that you're convinced that everything is in fine when in fact you are really dying on the inside. The water's getting hotter, but you don't realize it. It's beginning to boil, but you have no awareness of that. One final reason, and quickly, we may struggle to prioritize scriptures because our priorities take precedent, other priorities take precedence above scripture. You may say, Aaron, I, I know I should read and meditate on scripture. I have good intentions, but man, you know my schedule. I mean, life is busy and I got so many important things and, 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 and all these things tend to kind of steal my time. I never seem to get around to it or at least not as often as I should. And, and when I do, my mind gets so distracted. I have so many rabbit trails and squirrels that go through my mind, right? Anybody relate? You know, there's a, a definition of free will that um, has always kind of stuck with me. And by the way, free will, as a kind of a side note, only Adam and Eve actually had a free will. Steve Blakeman and I were talking about this. They're the only ones who truly had a free will before it fell, and all of us were born with a fallen nature. So our will has never actually been free. We've been free to pursue a course of destruction, but we've never actually had a free will between right and wrong until the Spirit has given us a new heart and regenerated us. Then we have a will again. But the truest definition of free will is that you always do what you most want to do at all times. Every single one of us in here always does what we most want to do at all times. That doesn't mean that we don't, have to, that we don't do things that we don't want to do at times, but we know that the repercussions for not doing the things that we don't want to do, we don't want to go down that road, so we do things that we don't want to do because of the repercussions if we don't do them. Did I confuse, confuse you thoroughly? You always do what you most want to do at all times. You always do what's important to you. You know, Jesus in Matthew chapter 13, he, he gives us this parable of the seeds, and you know this parable. It's li- he, he's literally talking about the kinds of soil that the different seed, that the seeds land on. And the word of God in this parable is the seed, and the soil are all kinds of receptive hearts. And in this parable, we see that the word of God lands on a thorny soil, which means that this thorny soil represents the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word so that it is unfruitful. And in turn, the unfruitful growth is cut off and burned in fire. The point is if if we let the busyness and the distraction and the cares of this world choke things out that are most important, then we will in turn reap what we sow. 
We cannot be healthy disciples of Jesus and not at the same time be devoted and meditate on his word. If we want the abundant life that Jesus promises in John 10, then there's only, we cannot have that apart from a consistent devotion with God through his eternal and inspired word. Let me conclude in this way. Where do we go from here? I want to encourage you, and I've kind of done this in the past too, but it's going to be a, a reevaluation or kind of a, a, a re-challenge. I want to encourage each of you to take a challenge with me. And for some of you, you don't even need this. You're already doing it. So this doesn't, you know, you might be going, I'm already doing this. It's all good. But for some of us in here, you know, you might be thinking like, man, I, if I'm honest with myself, Scripture is really hit and miss in my life. So here's a challenge for you. The month of June is fast approaching, right? Remember what I talked about start small? I'm going to challenge you for, for the entire month of June to commit now to spend 10 minutes just reading the Scripture. Now, when I say 10 minutes, I'm not saying read 10 minutes without stopping. You could be reading the same 10 minutes, but it's only like five verses long because you need to read, reread, and reread again, right? But take 10 minutes of just devoted time reading the Scripture, and then take that time, take another 10 minutes, and just prayerfully meditate and chew on it. Asking questions such as this, Lord, what are you saying to me? God, what are you trying to communicate to me? Because remember, the Scripture is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It has the ability to, to pierce between soul and, and, and spirit. It, it, the, the Scripture has the ability to penetrate. And it's, it's so amazing how, though God is writing to all people, the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and penetrates our heart and gives us exactly what we need. And so we need to take time to just stop and ask, God, what are you saying to me? I've, heard, I've read these words. I've reread them. Maybe I've done multiple translations of them to really get a good grasp. Now I'm asking, what are you saying? And just sit there and say, God, I'm listening. Now, for some of you, this is going to be a nightmarish process because you have a hard time sitting for 10 minutes doing nothing but thinking and reflecting. So start small. I'm chilling out, throwing out a challenge, but maybe, maybe it's five minutes for you. Just start. Just start. And just for a couple helpful tips to make this most effective for you, let me just say a couple things. If you fail to plan, you plan to fail. I didn't come up with those words. I know Dave Ramsey says them all the time. But if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. In other words, you're not just going to passively or accidentally do this. It has to be a proactive, intentional pursuit. You have to plan, even the night before, to do it. Abby and I, we get up early in the morning. Trust me, we have a lot of built-in distractions. I mean, uh, lovely children that are... uh, that will also like to get up early. These girls don't really get up any early more. But, but our youngest ones, they're still up early. We understand. We're, we're still working through this. We're, we're, we haven't arrived and figured that out perfectly. But let me just say this. Make a plan. Form a habit. Form a rhythm. At least our kids know this is what mom and dad do in the morning, even if they still continue to distract us. Make a plan. And here's the thing. Uh, you, you just got to come in prepared. Another tip is this. Before you start reading, don't just kind of, got my coffee, sit down, open my Bible, all right, going to get through it. Start the stopwatch, get through it. No, no. Take some time, take a few moments just to kind of close your eyes, not fall back to sleep if you do in the morning. Breathe and just ask God, God, right now I'm giving you my undivided attention. Right now, this is all about you and me. Speak to me right now 
through your word. And perhaps even in those few moments, what the Spirit of God wants to do first is to lead you in a time of confession, maybe a time of celebration, even before you start reading the pages of Scripture because your heart is not yet ready to receive. Again, it all comes down to preparation. Much like any athlete, you don't just jump out and do it, especially as you get older. You have to warm up. Quiet your heart. Be still before the Lord and know that he is God. Ask him, Lord, I need your help to receive what you have for me. And a third final tip is don't read from your phone. Yeah, it's convenient. I can go to every translation under the sun. It's amazing. Do not read from your phone. Read from an actually, actual printed Bible. As I was even just kind of thinking about this this morning, I was like, you know, reading from your phone or trying to have undivided attention with God through your phone is like an alcoholic sitting in a bar trying to not relapse. It doesn't work. There are so many distractions. There are so many things that are vying for your attention. There are so many things that are just, that are going to just kind of squirrel and you're off to the next thing. Remember what we talked about the rule of life, Bible before phone? Don't even bring your phone with you. If your reading plan is on your phone, print it off (laughs) ahead of time and then keep your phone away. Open the word, be still. Less is actually more. And let God speak to you, meditate. And in a month's time, I'm going to ask you this question. I want to have a time of testimony. I want to have a time of you. Tell me what the Spirit of God did and showed you through the Word of God. And I want you to testify to one another of what God has done in and, your life, in and through your life. I want to do that because I think it's one of the greatest ways that we can encourage one another, the testimony of the saints. And so at the end of June, I'm going to ask you that question, not to put the, you in the hot seat. I'm not going to call on you, maybe. Um, but... We're going to do that for the month of June. So I'm going to just throw that challenge at you. I'm not going to say a show of hands because everybody's going to raise their hand anyway because no one wants to not raise their hand. Uh, and that just makes it really awkward. But here's the deal. Let's do it together. And let's see what God shows us and how he ministers to our hearts and refreshes and renews our soul and gives rejoicing to our hearts. Amen? As I think about the eternal word of God, I couldn't help but also think, one day you and I will be face to face with Jesus. Think about that. Right now, we listen to Jesus through, by the Spirit through the, the holy eternal scriptures. But one day you and I will be sitting at his literal feet and asking him questions. And much like the disciples got to experience, he's going to be speaking and teaching and we're going to continue to learn for all eternity. One day. But until that day, we have the scriptures. That's not a second class. That's not a default. That's not, well, it's good enough until he comes. That's, no, it is equally and divinely incredible. Jesus has had even says, it's good that I go and the spirit comes and the spirit takes the word of God and penetrates our heart. God wants you to know him. And one of the greatest ways he shows or makes himself knowable is through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. And Jesus Christ did not come to earth haphazardly or randomly, but he came on divine mission. And that divine mission was this, that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, and as Jesus even acknowledges it, but I go willingly. I go willingly to the cross to save that which I love. Jesus loves you. And the greatest expression of love for you is by giving his life for you. 